Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. In 2021, a famous Vietnamese businesswoman and influencer hosted a Facebook live stream that lasted over three hours, in which she named and shamed celebrities for their public behaviours. This wasn't the first time she had weaponized live streaming. In fact, it was part of a regular pattern of personal attacks that cover a wide range of topics, attacking media and charity organizations and attracting huge online audiences. This is a new era for influencers and for the Vietnamese government, which is trying to maintain control over the online environment. So how is the digital realm being regulated in Vietnam and what tensions does the country face as it invests in and develops its digital and creative industries? To explore these issues, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Hutchinson, Senior Lecturer in Online Communication and Media at the University of Sydney. Jonathan's research explores cultural production, public service media, cultural intermediation, everyday social media, automated media and algorithms in media. He is a Chief Investigator on the Australian Research Council Discovery Project, Online News and Media Pluralism, and is also a Chief Investigator on the eSafety Commission Research Project, Emerging Online Safety Issues, Co-Creating Social Media Education with Young People. He is the Editor-in-Chief of the Policy and Internet Journal and the Treasurer for the Australian and New Zealand Communication Association. His book, Cultural Intermediaries, is published through Palgrave Macmillan. Jonathan, welcome to SEAC Stories. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having me today. So tell us about this Facebook live streaming that took place in 2021 and lasted for an epic three hours. Who was the influencer and why is she so popular? Well, interestingly enough, the person is Ms. Nguyen Phuong Hung, and she's not really an influencer. Like You wouldn't put her in that category of a social media influencer but she is a very popular business person. So she's the CEO of the Dynam Van Hien Tourism Complex, which is in the Binh Duong province in southern Vietnam. My Vietnamese pronunciation is still developing, so I apologize to any Vietnamese audience members. This is what I know of this, of this particular person. So, you know, you wouldn't think that she's a, a social media influencer as such, but because of her standing in the business community, she has a has a significant audience and she built quite a large following, particularly on her Facebook page, which is where the live stream took place. And was that her first foray into Facebook live streaming? What other sort of modes of communication has she used in the past? She's prominent on Facebook and her Facebook Live events had been gaining momentum over a few months in uh, 2020, 2021. And this particular one that she had done where she got into quite a bit of trouble was not the first, but she had been gaining momentum in the style of content that she had been presenting, which was this kind of name and shame expose almost into to local sort of celebrities and media people. Yeah, so it wasn't her first experience at it, but she's mainly built an audience on Facebook and the Facebook live stream events was her her main avenue for talking with her audiences. And do we know if these audiences are tuning in for the full three hours? I mean, that seems like a pretty big commitment on the part of the audience to me. Well, interestingly, Facebook penetration rates in Vietnam are quite significant. 
it's something like 89% of the population uses Facebook. And Facebook is used a little bit differently in Vietnam in that it's the internet. So in countries similar to Vietnam, you don't really go online, you go onto Facebook. And so it's changing as the social media environment changes. It is changing now. But just to give you an idea of sort of the enormity of Facebook within Vietnam, it has this humongous penetration rate of 89% of most social media users use Facebook. So the audience is there. Whether they stay on for three hours or not, though, is, you know, that's a good question. Probably not. Uh, It's probably more a sort of a drop-in, drop-out kind of thing, unless there's fireworks happening, in which case the version of November 14, when it all went down, there was probably quite a few people listening to that one. Well, Well, tell us what went down in November. What actually happened? What were these fireworks? So so typically what she was doing was naming and shaming, as I mentioned before, you know, sort of celebrities and media people and government officials. And so what happened on the 14th was she just went too far and started talking about the particular government officials and kind of claiming that they were doing things that they weren't doing. And she was using quite harsh language to describe a lot of the state-owned media. And so... What happened was in the aftermath of that, the authorities thought that she had broken a live stream law by spreading false information and accused her of insulting the honor, prestige and credibility of the Vietnamese revolutionary press. So it was kind of a, you know, the government said no, and she said, well, I'm going to do this anyway. So it it did cause a lot of friction between her and the government. But more importantly, I think it illuminated the sorts of issues that are starting to emerge on Vietnamese social media. Well, you've mentioned the live stream law. Is that actually legislated? Is that something that, that has been formally introduced by the Vietnamese government? This moment changed the social media law. If you're classified to be a social media influencer. So within this definition, it means if you have 10,000 followers or more, you have to register, including your home address with the state authorities. That's the latest addition to that. But it's, it's embedded in many countries, I think. Internet law is embedded in historical broadcast law. So within Vietnam itself, they have the, the 1992 constitution which has a specific article, Article 69, which says that citizens are free to express themselves through opinion and speech and that they also have the right to assemble and the right to demonstrate. It's a kind of a freedom of speech constitution. But they also have Article 258, which is in the criminal code, which prohibits citizens from abusing democratic freedoms to infringe upon the interests of the state. And I'll just quote what they also say here. All information stored on, sent over or retrieved from the internet must comply with Vietnam's press law, publication law and other laws, including state secrets and intellectual property protections. So you've sort of got this really unique regulatory tension here in that you can say what you want to say, but within reason. And I think when the hung live stream went out, it really found this new space that kind of made all the regulators go, what do we do here? We've never been challenged with this instance before. So it did change things for future use. Well, I was going to ask what sort of influencer she is, but it sounds to me like she's um, influenced the legislation in quite a profound and significant way. What, what has been the impact in terms of other online activities for other influencers? Yeah, it's a good question because... 
influence gained a lot of momentum as it has all over the world. Within Vietnam, influence has gained a lot of momentum with users. And you've seen a lot of uptake with young users. I mean, it's nothing out of step with what social media and trends have been emerging around the world. Significant penetration rate of all sorts of platforms, Facebook being one of the the big ones. Zalo, which is a Vietnamese messaging app, is also quite large as well. Instagram and Twitter. Instagram is probably higher than Twitter. And we're still working out how much impact or visibility TikTok has in Vietnam. You know, I would imagine quite high given the rest of the world. And in those sorts of spaces, the top influences are pretty similar to everywhere else in the world. So those who talk about kind of lifestyle content, fashion, beauty, travel, comedy, there's a couple of child entertainers who are quite popular as well. So the influences seen within Vietnam is pretty similar to what you would expect for, for the rest of the world, very much led by that lifestyle look at me doing amazing things in amazing places. And I'm obviously very rich. That kind of undertone is what comes through. Highly curated, very engaging. And I was interested in the fact that Hung's live stream was three hours because, you know, the message we have got in other podcasts that we've done on use of social media as an influencing, political influencing tool in the Philippines, for example, is that it's all about short, sharp, highly curated content. So this three hours is really fascinating to me. So one thing, you know, we haven't addressed overtly is that Vietnam does have this centralized political system whereby it seeks to regulate and control the population through a range of measures. Within this context, are there influences that are considered socially acceptable? And if so, what does a socially unacceptable influencer look like? This is where I think it becomes incredibly interesting because, as you rightly note, it's a state-driven media system, yet unlike China, which has its control over social media as well, it also operates in this dual mode with you know, San Franciscan-style Silicon Valley types of social media platforms. So in itself, that's quite fascinating that these two systems operate in unison as a starting point. So if you then start to scratch into it a little bit further, so the kinds of influences that I said I talked about before, so, you know, sort of lifestyle, beauty vloggers, those kinds of things, they rate quite well. Other users, particularly those who are critical on the government, they're still there, but their visibility is not as large as what the other sorts of users are. And so that poses the question, you know, what's going on here? Like, why are people who are critical against the government not being seen, not getting as much views? And I spoke to an activist in Ho Chi Minh City. He started a YouTube channel. This is a bit of an anecdote that kind of demonstrates what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here. He was a YouTuber and he started his channel as a sort of a technology person. So he'd review, you know, drones and talk about cameras and, you know, kind of a typical technology vlogger. And then at one point, he started criticizing the government for freedom of speech issues. And you can see straight away between his YouTube views where it goes from, he was averaging around about 10,000 views per video. And on the video where he was talking about civil dissent, he dropped down to 28 views on that one particular video. You know, it's not the same content that his video, his channel viewers probably would have been a little bit jarring for any kind of channel if you're suddenly, you know, you're talking about technology and then all of a sudden, you, you know, you're kind of slamming the state or whatever. There's that. 
but that's pretty significant to go from 10,000 to 28 views. Yeah, something something's going on. And do you have any ideas as to what it is? Do you believe that the Vietnamese government is directly intervening to tweak the algorithm so that it's not being viewed? Yeah. So the 2020 Amnesty International Let Us Breathe report came out and they went down the human rights pathway there saying that, you know, the government is directly involved and they're uh, restricting people to have freedom of expression and freedom of speech. And it started the discussion. And if you go to Google, do a transparency report, which is really fascinating to look at. And if you look at Vietnam as the country within their transparency report, you can see the government requested takedown notices. So one piece of evidence that we absolutely do have is the increase in takedown notices that the Vietnam government are distributing to Google which is YouTube. And what that tells us is that the government are looking at the content that's coming out across social media platforms. If they're not using it or if they don't like it, it's they deem it to be against the media laws of the country. They will contact the technology providers and request for that information to be taken down. So do you attribute the rise in government takedown notices directed towards Google by the Vietnamese government to the fact that there is more content with dissent in it or to the fact that the Vietnamese government is playing catch-up and is more aware of the need to crack down on the dissent? Big question to answer. And at this point, we don't have evidence for either way. But what we can see on the surface is that there is some kind of relationship between the content that is visible and the level of engagement that the Vietnamese government have with it. What I think is interesting, if we broaden the view out a little bit here and sort of see what's going on, if you use visibility, right, as the lens to look at social media content, it's really obvious content which is promoting Vietnam. So things like tourism or Vietnamese food or culture, they enjoy high levels of visibility on social media platforms. Content which is not in that space is significantly less than, and that includes, you know, content of of dissent as well. It doesn't achieve such high visibility rates as well. I don't know whether I should ask this question or whether you're able to offer a response to it, but would you characterize these regulatory efforts as oppressive or as effective in maintaining law and order or some combination of the two? I think it's interesting to observe without being in country, and that's the next phase of the the research as well, but from not being within country, I, I am looking over the fence at the moment and going, this is what we can see from what the data is telling us. And it is interesting that the amount of content that is of that critical nature is less. But having said that, I think it's also interesting that they're modeling, well, they're developing a new model actually of how content can be created and run within state-run systems. While that, from one side of the discussion, I think that can be looked at as oppressive and a negative way of doing it. But on the other side, it's interesting how things like misinformation or vitriol content or the negative aspects of social media is also decreased in that space. There's a really fascinating story that's emerging from the Vietnamese case here around how they're governing this kind of social media content and the sorts of outcomes that are emerging from the process itself. 
Yeah, you've really made the case for why Vietnam is such an interesting place to be thinking about these Silicon Valley style social media models. One other interesting thing about Vietnam in the region is it is trying to position itself as a digital go-to country for startups. And I'm also aware that the Australian government has invested heavily in Vietnam's digital future. What does it mean when Vietnam is sort of making it up as they're going, as opposed to thinking of this proactively as part of their digital strategy? Yeah, it's an interesting one because they are creating their own model in many ways. So you could look at it and go, look, they're catching up. They're catching up to the rest of the world. The rest of the world's so far advanced in social media spaces. You know, they've been doing influencer marketing for years, et cetera, et cetera. All of those sorts of arguments pop up. But I'm not sure that's what's going on here. I think they're actually trailblazing their own way of doing digital communication. So as you rightly know, there's significant investment in Vietnam at the moment to become that sort of startup country within the region. So that's what they're really going for in that space is to to attract young, bright minds and there's tax benefits, tax cuts for people who are operating in the country. So they're really trying to push that along. You know, it's not really a catch-up game. I think it's a it's its own unique way of trying to bring these giant technology providers to hold them to account to some particular way, which other countries have failed spectacularly at, including Australia. I'm not sure if you remember when Facebook News went down a few years ago. That was how Facebook negotiated with the Australian government, whereas Vietnam has a very open two-way conversation with them, obviously. So what are the implications then if Vietnam is trailblazing in this social media regulation space? What are the implications for other countries in Southeast Asia or indeed around the world? Yeah, that could be a dangerous situation. So in the kinds of countries where oppression is elevated, and there's more authoritarian types of governments in place, if these social media technology providers are in close conversations with governments like that, that's dangerous. That's incredibly dangerous for, as Amnesty point out, you know, freedom of speech and human rights issues. That's, that is a real threat that is present. However, for more liberal kinds of Western, I guess, if you wanted to use that word, governments and societies, I think it's a good beacon in terms of how to work with these sorts of companies to try and control the sorts of negative content that appears in these social media spaces. So it's both good and bad. There's no real answer to this at this stage, but more to just kind of look at how it would roll out across different sorts of democratic and economic situations and know that in some it's not a great thing, but in others, it's actually not a bad thing to be working closely in these sorts of ways between the government and the the technology providers. So in an ideal world, if we're trying to create a new way of managing things like hate speech on social media, for example, ideally you'd have governments and social media companies as part of that conversation. Would you also like to see human rights organisations involved in those discussions? Yeah, I think that's the missing voice within a lot of these conversations. So I think you've got human rights and NGOs sort of on the sidelines kind of knocking at the door saying, uh, we need to be in on this conversation. But there's, I think governments are just grappling with how to deal with 
the likes of Meta and Twitter and you know now TikTok's becoming a, a really significant player as well. So I think governments are trying to get a foot in the door and have some kind of anchor through regulatory processes to to hold them to account and try and you know improve these kinds of communication spaces. But unfortunately, a lot of the voices who are impacted by this, and this also emerges from the research that we're doing with young people at the moment around, you know, emerging issues for them on social media, is that their voice is also being sidelined in these kinds of discussion spaces as well. And so what happens is at the end of it, it's like, oh, that's right, we need to protect the young people because they're kind of looking at these discussions going, what are you doing? Like, we know, we know how to operate in these spaces. We're safe. In fact, we've got all of these really innovative practices that, you know, stop hate speech and help us to operate in these kinds of spaces. So, so broadening out that regulatory discussion with the people who are actually involved in it would be such a positive direction for these kinds of conversations to go in. You mentioned that the next stage of this research project is to visit Vietnam, to return to Vietnam. What will you be doing there? Yeah, so early next year in February 2023, we are heading over to Ho Chi Minh City. I'm traveling with a documentary filmmaker, uh, David Ma is his name. And so we're traveling to Ho Chi Minh City to do a co-production with A Bowl of Rice, which is one of the local production companies over there. And I have to do a quick shout out to Associate Professor Jane Gavin here for the wonderful connection of getting us in contact with a bowl of rice. The idea now is that we travel over there and we interview some of the top influencers in Vietnam. And the idea is to not go and say, hey, human rights, what about that? You know, like we're not so much interested in disturbing the hornet's nest, as it were. But what we can see is that there's the UNESCO Sustainability Development Goals quite prominent in the kinds of work that's being visible and promoted across Vietnamese social media. So what we're trying to understand is that to ask these influencers, is this a consideration for you? And I kind of hypothesize that it's not. When they're creating content, they don't have UNESCO in the back of their mind. But what is being created and published and distributed is content that really aligns with some of those sustainability goals. So it'll be interesting to then be in the country to talk to these, you know, highly visible influencers and go try and understand their production model. You know, what are they thinking about when they create content? Who are they trying to talk to? You know, when they work on different platforms, what's the sorts of strategies that they involve and that kind of thing. So that's the starting point. And, you know, I think once we get over there, we'll no doubt uncover some really interesting stories along the way as well. Absolutely. And I know that legislative changes don't make for very exciting documentary material, but will you be looking at the impact of these new laws on the digital space? Yeah, that's that's really hilarious that you say that. I can't imagine making a, a film about regulation. I don't, I'm not sure people would really want to go and see that. But interestingly, it's kind of the impact of regulation that makes the interesting story, right? So I think framing it in a way of Article 69 says blah, 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 won't be that exciting. But then to look at young people who are making TikToks for in the middle of the pandemic, a young Vietnamese duo made a TikTok about the hand-washing dance. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. I'm so glad you've raised it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that went completely viral, right? Like all around the world, everyone saw the hand-washing dance. In a way, that's kind of a response to what's happening in the regulation space, right, if you kind of frame it in the right way, in that 
These are positive messages that are coming through. It's in line with the direction of chief medical officers. So, I mean, it's all that in itself sort of demonstrates that the content that some influencers are making is aligning in that sort of space, which is in this regulatory framework. But that's the the regulatory framework. If it was an actor, it's certainly way back in the out of focus part of the of the screen. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing the results of um, that documentary. When it is out, please do let us know. And best of luck with the next trip to Vietnam and with this really exciting and fascinating research project. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. Thanks, Natalie. It's been great. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.